0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. And bring a large, warm, ruckus applause back for Mr. Sean Camperson. He's back, everybody, coming into you live from New York City for another fantastic week of news for the Weekly Dispatch. Guys, thanks so much for your patience. It has been a crazy two weeks with school doing open memos, getting ready for finals. And unfortunately, I have not been able to keep up with all of the news and provide you wonderful listeners with exactly all the things going on. So that being said, this week's Weekly Dispatch covers the 11th through the 18th of November. A lot happened this week, which we will shortly follow up with. One of the things I want to start off this conversation with is an initiative that CronusFit is starting. We're talking to some local state and city representatives trying to get the ball rolling for next year's Veterans Day. This Veterans Day initiative will be to go to those locations which provide service members and veterans complimentary meals as part of a thanks and effort to give back to the veteran community. We want to use those meals and come up with a way to give those back to another community which desperately needs them, especially around this time of year when it's getting colder and colder out and resources are more scarce. And that's the homeless community, especially here in New York. There are thousands of individuals living on the streets with really subpar conditions that can be provided by a lot of city and state agencies. And because of that, if we can just at one time in the year Do something as a veteran community, which in general is more selfless than any other community out there, and that is providing these individuals with just one hot meal. I think that would really make a difference in someone's life. It's just one meal. If we can do something where you take that individual off the street and you bring them into those welcoming environments and you provide them with that meal, that might be something that really stands out for that person for that year, for that month, and I think it's something that we can really come together with and make happen. Now that we've gotten that out of the way so we can start planning for it next year, and if you have ideas, contact us. We're gonna get into the news cycle. Before we do that, I wanna say thanks to our sponsors, Paragon Recovery. Using the code CRONUS on their website, you can get incredible deals for recovery products. Bobby and I both use their products, especially at night, so when we wake up, it's a little bit more efficient for our system recovery. We're hitting our workouts extra hard, especially since the CrossFit Open is now complete. And we're gonna get those prizes and awards out to the individuals who bested Bobby on our leaderboard. That will be announced next week, so congratulations to all the people that participated in this year's Open Workout. This week has been pretty crazy when it comes to news, both on the sports side, and then on the news of the impeachment, which feels like it's been going on for months. We're gonna start hammering out some of the details, exactly what's coming out of the public hearings, versus the private hearings that are ongoing and what transcripts are being released and how this process all fits into the impeachment process. We talked about a couple podcasts ago where we laid out the foundations of how articles of impeachment are introduced in the House of Representatives before a vote to go to the Senate where the final hearing takes place and what that means for due process because we constantly hear about it. We're going to travel to the Middle East. We're going to talk about Iran and maybe, just maybe, we'll talk about Afghanistan's election. It just feels like it hasn't resolved itself yet. I almost forgot about it until the fact that I looked up at my notes and I was like, hey, must cover again is not resolved. So we're gonna find that out together. It's gonna be a wonderful time. And then we're gonna close out talking about the VA. The VA for many veterans and those that are about to transition is a very formidable, intimidating entity. Because for those that are looking to get service-related disability, it seems like an uphill battle to get paid for or get recovery for the injuries that you sustained that will potentially limit you to employment in the future. So I'm going to break down exactly how the VA goes about its claim process, what you need to do from here until that point that you transition. And then we're going to cover some final news. I'm going to go see Jojo Rabbit tonight. So I will have a review next week for all those of you that are interested in seeing that movie, as well as Hobbs and Shaw, which I just saw, Uso. So anyway, without much further ado, let's get into it. The beginning of the week started the first rounds of hearings and testimony in the House Intelligence Committee. That's where Chairman Schiff has been running the initial course of this impeachment inquiry. And we first saw three members come on Monday. The most stirring testimony, though, came from Laura Cooper. She was the Deputy Associate Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And she laid the groundwork for what would become the rest of the week's questioning, line of questioning, as Democrats try to discuss all of the articles in which President Trump may have impeachment charges levied against him and right now i know what everyone's thinking there was no quid pro quo it was a beautiful call it was perfect everyone said so perfect no one's got anything to say well right now that's not the only thing they're going to focus on and i'm going to talk about the reasons why even some of the things that happened yesterday friday in the hearing live as you watched it on tv might have some dire consequences for president trump although in reality, you can stop listening right now because there's no bipartisan work on this. There won't be. This is going nowhere. Mark my words when it gets to the Senate, because it will get to the Senate. You're just going to see more arguing and more banter back and forth across the aisles because this is way more about elections than actually protecting the Constitution. But back to Miss Cooper. She reported that the reason for the freeze from the 26th of july phone call about 400 million dollars of aid going to ukraine was based off president trump's concern of corruption her testimony describes mass confusion within the secretary of state within the department of state within all the entities because they could not identify exactly what was going on with this money the Pentagon was questioning if the Office of Management and Budget even had the authority to uphold that money that was already apportioned by Congress. And she made up just a third of the testimonies from Monday. The holdup risked millions, uh, tens of millions of dollars from getting into the hands of the Ukrainians as they continue to fight against the Russian incursion. So that's, again, the background. For those of you that are just joining us, welcome. But On a phone call with President Zelensky on the 26th of July, President Trump raised a lot of eyebrows when he kind of made it seem that there was an intent to either hold up money or to have some sort of bargaining power and incurring some legal detriment on behalf of President Zelensky and Ukraine, and that would be in the form of an investigation, which has been broadly categorized as a search for corruption within the company Burisma, in Ukraine with Hunter Biden, who is Vice President Joe Biden's son, and how that relates to corruption in general in Ukraine with the 2016 election. So with all that ongoing in the background, which seems very confusing to stay on top of anyway, now we have individuals finally coming out and providing testimony uh, on the Capitol. And following Ms. Cooper's testimony, the biggest testimonies came from George Kent, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, and Mr. William Taylor, who is the Acting Ambassador to Ukraine. He replaced Marie Ivanovich who we will cover here shortly, and they went to Capitol Hill on Wednesday to discuss the freeze in the supply to Ukraine, as well as some of the concerns that they had and things that they had overheard in their time, in their positions. Specifically, the Democrats were looking to see that Mr. Trump abuses office by withholding security aid to Ukraine, really trying to press home the idea that the country needs to investigate what he was seeking, and that was political dirt on his potential rival for a 2020 election. The House Intelligence Committee Chairman, who is Adam Schiff, and he is a Democrat from California. And his opening statement kind of laid out exactly what the groundwork was and at At the beginning of the week, again, most people figured that the line of questioning would focus on a quid pro quo. And what many Republicans have come out and already defended throughout the weeks, including Senator Lindsey Graham, has essentially said, we acknowledge the fact that there was a quid, we acknowledge the fact that there was a quo, but we don't see that there was a quid pro quo. So there was essentially no transfer or no request for that transfer. And that seems kind of counterintuitive to me when I'm looking at it, because there was a specific request to do something for something else, but because it's not written in black and white, and many of these individuals on Capitol Hill hold law degrees, they're refusing to acknowledge its existence, which is kind of weird, because sitting in law school and seeing that just because there's no direct linkage between A and B, if there are definite indicators and markers that you would be able to draw that there is definitely a legal cause approximate cause between the two, you can make a very strong case that that occurred. But they're taking that defense, so that's where they're going to stay. Mr. Taylor on Wednesday said that he saw a link between the aid to Ukraine and the investigations, and that Mr. Trump wanted the country to pursue this new direction for his presidency. He wanted to fight corruption, but at the same time, he had a pressing concern back at home. And then he had an individual, one of his aides, say behind closed doors that he had heard of a July 26 call between Gordon Sondland, who is the ambassador to the European Union and the president. And this is where it started getting really contentious between the Republicans and the Democrats. Because in that call, which took place just a day after the call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, President Trump asked Mr. Sondland about quote-unquote, this ongoing investigation, and if the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. And it became apparent to the individuals and to Mr. Taylor's aide that was sitting there, they were specifically referencing an investigation into the Bidens. Now, it's really difficult, and I completely acknowledge the idea that some might be a little disturbed that this telephone game could have such an implication in a democratically elected president. And I agree with that. If there's no significant evidence to contribute to the idea of a high crime and misdemeanor, this telephone game approach isn't probably the best way to bring in evidence. And Mr. Taylor was specifically asked at times by individuals on the Republican side of the committee if he believed that President Trump was guilty of one of these impeachable offenses, to which Mr. Taylor, who is a decades-long public servant, said that's not his job. And I agree with him there, too. It seems that when we bring individuals into here on hearings, we often ask them from the perspective of congressmen and women to answer the questions that they don't themselves want to answer. It seems very lazy on the part, especially when it comes to an investigation, that such senior members that we elect would fail to connect the dots and would rather do the easy thing and just say, hey, because Mr. Taylor didn't say President Trump was guilty, he must not be guilty. It seems very lazy again to pursue this kind of investigation. But then, anyway, we go back to this phone call on the 25th. Mr. Taylor's testimony also rebutted some efforts by the White House to portray any link between that aid and the investigation, again, because when asked, have you ever seen another example of foreign aid conditioned on personal or political interests of the President of the United States, asked by Daniel Goldman, who was a former federal uh, prosecutor, uh Mr. Taylor responded, no, Mr. Goldman, I have not. And then, like we said, on the Republican side, where they keep attacking the process in this telephone game, Steve Castor, who is the Republican staff member who conducted most of the questioning for the Republican Party, asked if this was the most irregular channel of diplomacy that he could ever imagine. And then Mr. Taylor clearly knew what that line of questioning was inferring, to which he said, it's not the most outlandish way to conduct foreign policy, and that's referencing Sondland and Perry and the personal counsel of the president, Mr. Giuliani, conducting what should have been done by the State Department. So that's kind of where we are left. Uh, Mr. Kent had some insight as he was asked questions, but the primary person they were trying to get information from was Mr. Will Taylor, who replaced Marie Yovanovitch. Because now as we segue into Marie Ivanovich's testimony in the House Intel Committee, just 90 minutes into her testimony, President Trump actually tweeted. And this tweet was pretty bad because now it gave a direction for the Democrats into their potential charges that they might levy against the president or they might vote on in the inquiry to transition this investigation into formal hearings into the Senate, And those are for harassment. So specifically now they're looking at 18 U.S.C. 1512, which specifically deals with harassment. And whether or not these tweets now that President Trump has been putting out, whether it's on the whistleblower and how we used to treat spies with hanging them, or this one now where we're personally attacking public servants, could that influence other witnesses through either embarrassing or harassing them in public? Everyone has agreed that the President Trump tweet was completely stupid and completely dumb. And that's the only thing so far that we have bipartisan support of on the Hill. But the question is, is it impeachable? We talked about it with Mr. Taylor. He didn't answer that question. Marie Ivanovich wasn't going to answer that question. But right now, 63 million Americans are thinking, okay, he's unorthodox. He's our president. This isn't something I'm willing to say he should be taken out of office for. Because... What's underlining all this is the high crimes and misdemeanors. We don't have a definite description of what crimes are exactly off the table so far as these are something that we convict an individual of, these are something that a person can be charged with. If we look back 20 years ago, President Bill Clinton had impeachment charges brought against him in the House. They failed in the Senate, and that was for lying and perjuring himself. So at what point is you actually really break the law or... Morally, at what point do you say I have to take this little piece of wood, strap it to my lower back and grow a spine and say that this is just wrong? So what's the motive right now? The Democrats seem to be bringing a lot of people and are subpoenaing a lot of people in order to show it there is a clear conditional relationship between this military aid and the suspension of all money going there until September, until the investigation was started. And it's important to note that Ukrainians at the time of the phone call had no idea that the aid was being upheld, and it's only in September when they heard about it, like around September 9th, that the aid was then released the very next day out of their concern. And so even though President Zelensky had come out, I think, in October and said, at no point did he feel threatened, and this was in front of like 300-some-odd 300, 300 reporters, at some point there still is a relationship that he has to develop with President Trump as the newly elected president of Ukraine, because he can't spite his, he can't, wait, what's the term? Bite his nose to spite his face, something along those lines. He can't lose his nose, okay? Everybody just can't, you can't lose a nose. Nose is important. I got a big one. I don't want to lose it. Smells. All right, he can't lose that. So if he goes out of his way and says that President Trump forced him or influenced him to conduct this investigation, and if President Trump is reelected in 2020, all of a sudden now there's a threat that maybe he doesn't get the support he needs from the United States. So that could be seen as potentially bribery, which is now where this tweet has led. Between harassment and now the idea of bribery, there are many other ways that the Democrats have to go forward, and I think it's going to upset many of the Republicans, because even on Fox News, they have no way to really defend these tweets. Every single Republican that's gotten up there and we'll cover it says, yeah, it's indefensible, I wouldn't personally do it. and that seems to be a common thread now. Many Republicans say they would not do any of the activities that President Trump has done, And then specifically asked, hey, if it comes out that he did uphold or withhold money to Ukraine's aid against a Russian aggression based on this potential election foe in 2020, is that impeachable? None of them are answering that question. And I think it's, again, really poor on our representatives that they're not asking the questions that all of us are considering. And this goes back to President Trump. It's hard to say that this one isolated incident alone is going to be enough motive to prove harassment, because he's proved in the past to be blowing off steam repeatedly on Twitter constantly since even before taking office. He kind of shoots from the lip you know, or the finger, and it, it's very tipped towards his personal opinions because he has that right as a president. But at what point does his position really start to influence individuals? There's a political risk here. If we're thinking of the electoral base and the political consequences of such a weighted question as, is this an impeachable offense, we're really focused on the wrong thing. What do I mean by that? Should we be focusing on the principles and protecting the Constitution, or should we be focusing on whether or not our base is going to support these kind of inquiries or hearings? And I think if we're answering the latter, we're doing the wrong thing as a country. We have to remember that the Constitution, while flawed, and we've talked about it, separates us from where we started out when we first broke away from Great Britain back in the 1700s. And that was off the idea that individuals couldn't be held accountable in the most senior positions because you could essentially decide what crimes you wanted to follow and which crimes you decided not to follow as a congress by setting really big and lofty goals and using hope as its primary mission this idea of a noble defeat is really exhaustive and a waste of time from the taxpayer's perspective and i want you to you know listen to that again a noble defeat is exhaustive and a complete waste of time because there's no success and failure absolutely none this isn't like you tried your best to get ready for ranger school and failed this isn't you tried your best when you went through selection and broke your ankle This isn't, you tried your best, and you ended up branching ChemCorp. This is a, we have so many things to do as elected representatives of the United States, we're not doing them. We're not focusing on the achievable goals like Medicare or lower cost prescriptions. We're on a path of goals that are strictly defined by this idea of hope and are somewhat outlandish. Uh, Dan Kildee was the representative from Michigan that first kind of spoke about this idea of these lofty goals. And then we get individuals that follow up, like Senator Blackburn from Tennessee. I talked about some of the Republicans, they disagree with the tweet, especially Jim Jordan and individuals that came out of Friday's Intelligence Committee hearings. Uh, Senator Blackburn went on to say that she disagreed with the tweet. And if the Senate takes up the hearing, that's where the process for due process starts happening. Well, she's right. That's exactly where due process happens. This open hearing is an inquiry. An inquiry is not a hearing, all right? You can have inquiries on anything. They voted to start having hearings to get questions out. It's still gonna have to go to the House Judiciary Committee. They're still gonna have to have a vote then to bring it to the House for a vote, and then when it gets to the Senate, that's where you start seeing representatives for the president come out and argue a case. It's not in the House, and we keep pointing to procedure And by saying that the procedures aren't being followed, even when they are, it doesn't mean that the procedures aren't being followed. You can say until you're blue in the face, the sky is red. I shouldn't use that example because in the morning it is. Uh, You could say that the sky is... I can't say green either because of the aurora Borealis. Okay, the sky... Come on, guys, help me out with the color here. Uh, uh, I'm so... I should really cut all this out, but I don't want to. It's going to be a lot of time. <sighs> Aquaman is real. Okay, you can say Aquaman is real all you want. We all know Jason Momoa played a great Aquaman, but we know Aquaman's not real. But by you saying it over and over again, is never going to make Jason Momoa breathe underwater, okay, no matter how badly we want it. So if Republicans constantly complain about the process, which really hasn't conflicted with the Constitution or previous impeachment proceedings... We really have to come down to the question again, what is impeachable? If this delay was based on an investigation into Hunter Biden, again, Senator Blackburn failed to answer and shifted the question to Obama, and then bringing up talking points like Obama only ever provided MREs and blankets to the Ukrainians. It's just a different time and a different era, but we need to focus on what's going on exactly right now. Additionally, she also brought up the idea of troops. You know, When she said she visited soldiers and met those individuals from Tennessee Her soldiers, her representatives, uh, all they wanted to hear about was, you know, how is this money getting to our allies rather than Russia? And that is like a talking point that individuals have been using constantly when we're in Afghanistan. How do we make sure that this money that we're giving to the Afghans is not going to al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban? It's just a talking point that deflects from the real issue. So that's kind of where we're at with that. The next thing we're going to cover is Mr. Sondland. All right. Mr. Sondland. Next week, we should probably hear from him. I should also caveat that the hearings that are going on in the House Intelligence Committee, uh, the first one's supposed to be, I think, Thursday of this week, uh, where they're going to focus on Mr. Sondland. Now, Mr. Sondland was appointed in March of 2018 to be the ambassador to the EU. After that, he headed to Brussels. Before that, he had been ingratiating himself with politicians and had actually given a million dollars to President Trump's inaugural fund, and that's kind of how he got spotted. But this EU ambassador position, the job doesn't get a lot of attention. It's a plum assignment in Brussels. You essentially meet with heads of state. As far as foreign policy goes, you're not the face of national agreements or discussion. You're more of a figurehead. And so that's really important to know because as we continue and transpire through this process, he's given the title of ambassador, but he's not an individual that's coming up with our foreign policy in the EU. Normally, he kind of would have faded away in the State Department, but then all of a sudden he gets roped into this Ukraine policy. And then he overhears some Ukraine discussions and he starts getting involved through conversations with the State Department. And next thing you know, he's really been caught by President Trump and Giuliani in this really bad process of foreign relations where we're going outside of this traditional role. And the reason why it's so important is because Ukraine is critical to stabilizing Europe. This idea that Ukraine is important, it's not in the EU, uh, gets back to Sondland, and then he's like, hey, I need to do something to find myself in Ukraine to have a bigger role in Europe. So... On the 20th of May, he goes to the new Ukrainian President Zelensky's inauguration. He goes along with Rick Perry and Mr. Volker, who we covered earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he really does believe that President Zelensky can fight this idea of corruption. So in June, the diplomats and Mr. Sondland meet with President Trump to talk about Ukraine. From Mr. Sondland, President Trump still blames Ukraine for the 2016 election problems, and then this conspiracy theory being behind the hacking of the Democrat National Committee, and that if anything is to be done, we have to bring Rudy Giuliani on board. He needs to be the point on this, and all the information needs to flow through his personal counsel. So Solomon initially was taken back by the idea that the personal lawyer was going to be that direct authority, uh, but Solomon decided that there was a chosen path, and that was through working with Mr. Giuliani after he starts following Giuliani into the halls of the Ukrainian debacle, that's where we first started getting aware of the name Sondland to even begin with. Because if you remember watching the news, there was this whole conversation between Ambassador William Taylor that we just covered and then Kurt Volker where they were going back and forth with Sondland and saying stuff like, hey, we don't understand why this aid is being held up. We're hearing that it's because of X, Y, and Z, mainly this investigation. And that's where we get this like really scripted text message after Mr. Sondland replied to Taylor where he said that Taylor... Um, And the diplomats were incorrect about President Trump's intentions. And then, quote, the president has been crystal clear that there's no quid pro quo of any kind. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. So with that, he kind of shut down the initial conversation that many Republicans pointed towards for this quid pro quo, saying, hey, look, someone said there was no quid pro quo, He had no reason to lie to Ambassador Taylor. So, look, conversation's over. But since then, Mr. Sondland has started walking back some of his talking points, believing that there was a reason for the holdup. And the only reason that he said this to Mr. Taylor was because of direct conversation he had with President Trump earlier. So that's kind of where we're at with Mr. Sondland and the exact influence that he has had over this investigation. And hopefully we learn more this week Uh, as they talk to him and they talk to individuals from the Office of Monetary and Budget and talk about exactly why some of this money was held up. So that kind of long, drawn-out discussion we just had is kind of giving you an idea of this week why the hearings will be so important. The Democrats want to try to have a vote on this in the House before the new year. Originally, this was supposed to be wrapped up before Christmas, before it would move to the Senate. However, I don't think these investigations are going to stop for probably another two weeks as the president's tweet has kind of set off a firestorm of potential new topics and investigations into his previous conduct because we can't just take one incident in isolation. Because this week also, uh, Roger Stone was charged in court for lying to Congress in D.C. after just two days of hearings. uh, Mr. Stone had ties to President Trump during his election, uh, during which time Roger Stone said that he had connections to WikiLeaks and then subsequently during the hearing said that he had lied about this WikiLeak information and having direct knowledge with Julian Assange, specifically how Russian interference and the DNC hack occurred. Stone will be awaiting sentencing in his home until February. He's probably going to look for a pardon from the president. But Stone was arrested in January during the Mueller investigation, as new details are coming out to see exactly how he heard about all the information with Secretary of State Clinton's emails coming to the forefront and some of the leaks in information. He also heard how the Trump campaign was to get that information from WikiLeaks and that that direct communication with Sanj was really the catalyst and the launching point for him into a lot of these investigations. Uh, In 2016 in July is when we have kind of that first discussion between President Trump and Roger Stone uh, speaking about the hacked emails. Um, And that comes from some of the testimony from Rick Gates, who is an aide. So Roger Stone is now going to await sentencing. Uh, He's rather old. We'll see exactly how his health shapes up over the next couple months while some of that anxiety builds. I can't imagine that the president wouldn't want to pardon him as such a close confidant and trying to keep some of that information quiet about the election. But like we said earlier, without these isolated incidents, if you take everything into consideration as just a body of evidence, and this is why I don't think the investigation is going to wrap up anytime soon, there's just too much to look at without doing an actual... Court hearing in the Senate to decide if impeachment charges because there's not going to be any wiggle room on either side of the aisle for really supporting this. You have Democrats coming out and saying that they haven't made up their mind yet as to President Trump's impeachable offenses. You have Republicans saying they're not going to budge. This is just really different from previous incidences because, at least back then, there were always one or two individuals that would cross the aisle, see eye to eye, have some empathy for the other's position, and try to come to a resolution. But in today's day and age, it's just not going to happen, especially as we start coming closer to 2020 with our elected campaign officials. And it's going to be even more difficult now for the election for those senators that are on the Senate Judiciary Committee because they're going to have to balance running for office as well as doing kind of this circus now impeachment. Ooh, God, that was a lot, guys. Not done. Uh, now we're going to talk about Google. God, Google is collecting personal health care info from millions of Americans, and that's across 21 states. Do I have the state breakdown? No, sorry. Uh, this is named, excuse me, Codenamed, guys, codenamed Project Nightingale. Maybe if I talk like this, it'll be more engaging. Project Nightingale. Google's dipping their toe into the industry with Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. This began in secret last year with the Catholic chain of hospitals, roughly 2,600 of them across the country. Can you imagine the secrecy? Do you hear me? Are you with me? Anyway, If you're one of the millions of individuals that Google has been collecting information on, there's no way that you would know because you have not been notified. Millions of individuals can have their information accessed by around 150 Google employees. And Google says it's complying with all the federal health laws, uh, specifically health insurance, Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 and is only allowed to share info so long as it's done to help cover the entity, carry out healthcare functions. So why is Google collecting all this information, and why should you care? Google is using the data to develop an AI to zero in on a patient's chances to care, treatment, and critical care. And this has been developed by the same individuals that came up with the cloud. Uh, This could also be used to identify that additional care or other ways to provide treatment which might be a way of driving up revenue. So instead of having a doctor assess you, we can use artificial intelligence and the cases of millions of people around the country to say this has worked in the past for these people. So it can kind of give the doctors an idea and a way of moving forward. Kind of like a better WebMD, where you definitely don't have cancer every single time, but you definitely have the plague. I should definitely say that. You have the plague, especially since it's back in China with two confirmed cases. This comes on the heels of Google's purchase of Fitbit for $2.1 billion, which I think could actually increase insurance costs. And stick with me on this. If Google owns Fitbit and is going to move into the health insurance industry or at least providing health insurance companies with the metrics to use on assessing an individual's health, Pair that with Fitbit, if you make people wear Fitbits and you make that a forcing function, a requirement, if you have the healthcare of whatever named healthcare agency you prescribe to outside of like TRICARE, you are now going to have 24-7 access to know if a person's getting out there and exercising, how active and fit they are. So when they come and they have all of these claims that they're feeling sick because they've been lethargic, because their heart rate you know, can't get above zone three because they they never work out. And then all of a sudden it shoots up to zone five the minute they take that first step going upstairs to get to the fridge from the basement. You're now going to have, I think, a long list of problems as people try to regulate health and say that fitness is now a prescribed method of maintaining health, which is weird because it's almost like that we've been saying that at uh, Chronosfit that if you live a halfy, 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 Jesus, a happy active lifestyle, also known as happy, then you are less likely to get sick uh, and develop some long-term diseases as your body is more adept at handling itself and movement and mobility as you age gracefully, much like I am. I haven't developed a single gray hair yet, and I attribute that not at all to genes, because why would I? I attribute that to uh, back squatting quite repeatedly. So anyway, that's something that I think you could take a look at. Is that going to discriminate against individuals that wear these devices that now have their information available, probably both on the Fitbit tracking that Google has access to as well as the potential paired healthcare? I don't know. I think it'll be really interesting to see where this one goes. And speaking of dumpster fires, I ran. Iran carried out its threat to enrich uranium at the Fordo Nuclear Site, which is a huge step from their 2015 deal. This location is considered impregnable by most modern weapons experts. Clearly, they have not played enough Call of Duty, because nothing is impregnable as far as I'm concerned, especially if you're sitting in that back corner on Nuketown circa 2012. All right, the other one, the Natanz facility, uh, no longer feels itself bound by the cap that was originally set for the stockpile of enriched uranium. Previously, it was at uh, 300 kilograms, and now they're starting to soar past that. And again, what's important to know about enriched uranium is in order to fuel a nuclear weapon, you need about 20%. Uh, and right now, they're at about 3 to 8% enrichment. And they've recently gone from producing just a few kilograms to almost 150 last month and then probably on pace for 200 this month. And they're trying to enrich their uranium levels above that 4.5%. Experts think that it's going to take roughly 12 months to reach the levels needed to be nuclear fuel for a bomb. And then in this whole process in the last week, Iran briefly held the Atomic Energy Agency Inspector uh, hostage, excuse me, hostage is such a, a, a bad term, but can we say held them indefinitely? That, oh, sorry, that was in October, claiming that she had triggered an explosive alarm indicating that she was a saboteur. And then it came out afterwards that she wasn't. They released her, but I think it was kind of with a lot of fanfare. So Iran's getting back to enriching its uranium. We kept saying that there was a line to be drawn in the sand. Uh, this was one of the pieces that President Trump was very critical of President Obama with, especially when it came to his Syria policy. And so now that we're seeing this in Iran with what would definitely would be a much more dangerous weapon that could get out into the hands of some pretty bad individuals outside of chemical warfare, we're talking nuclear warfare or nuclear if you are a biology student and you just don't want to separate the words nuclear this could lead to a lot of tension in the middle east beyond what we reported on earlier this summer with some mines hitting tankers and then tankers being taken over uh in the Strait uh and all the action going on in the Strait of hormuz all right our final topic that we're going to hit is going to be talking about the va so the VA in general is broken down into three departments. You have the Veterans Benefits Administration. You have the Veterans Health Administration which serves 9 million members across 150 centers with about 300 vet centers and rehab facilities. Uh, they also run the National Cemetery Administration. And then you have the Board of Veterans Appeals. So those are the three pillars of the VA. Uh, that Board of Veteran Appeals is where the Office of the Secretary is, uh, who is Robert Milkey So one of the things that we're dealing with now uh, as veterans as we transition out, or if you're getting ready to transition out, is a doctor can tell a veteran of an injury which is service-related, and then the Board of Veterans uh, Appeals will deny that. Um, and the administration denies that. So uh, about this uh, Veterans Benefit Administration, okay? so. You know, they, they do stuff like medical care, home loan guarantees, educational assistance, survivor benefits, disability conversation, because you can get their uh, veterans life insurance, which when you get out, if you don't have life insurance, is very easy to have. It's a term life insurance, you know, but by the time you're 50 or 60, um, it gets very expensive. It can be you know, well over $1,000 a month as you start aging, because term life insurances uh, typically are more expensive rather than whole life that you start earlier. So, the VBA has 58 regional offices with reviewing officers, um, and then that goes to the Board of Veteran Appeals, which is much like a U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and and that was established back in 1988, so we could really review the disability claims that individuals uh, have once they get out. Uh, Judges in this Court of Appeals are appointed directly by the President and hold a position for 15 years. So that's kind of what the VBA is, what it provides, what it does, a very broad, categorical, sweeping statement of their responsibilities. So we define a veteran by the statute uh, 38 USC, section 101, subsection 2. So long as you have other than dishonorable discharge, uh, mostly you need, in general, you need an honorable discharge for most VA benefits. Um, and you have service or a service-related uh, incident, you can go and claim uh, disability ratings uh, or look for some of the benefits, like the GI Bill, Post 9-11, Montgomery stuff, uh, to go and, and go to school. So beyond discharge characterizations, you typically have to have 24 months of consecutive uh, service or an entire period of active duty uh, for which you, know, you, the veteran, was called to serve. And then when we talk about discharges, We have the administrative level, uh, which is honorable, general, and other than honorable, and those are called administrative. And then you have punitive, which are the bad conduct and dishonorable, and those are the ones that are really hard to pursue any kind of rights after you get out of the military. So with a general discharge, you really can't get the GI Bill with an other than. It's a case-by-case basis uh, for the VA to review, and then that Discharge Review Board, uh, each branch has its own, That should that's important to know, that will review your case. And this uh, DRB has a 15-year statute of limitations for looking at cases and looking for some of the injuries that you might have sustained. So that gives you kind of a background of how the VA is set up. We'll talk about some eligibility. So Since 1980, there was no real service length requirement Uh, for VA disability compensation. You're going to get a monthly tax-free income. Um, It's not tied in any way uh, or anything like Social Security benefits or disability uh, insurance. You can work while receiving your disability payments from the VA. They're not conditioned on your ability to you know, have employment. It's not like a, uh, you know, contract law where if you're unjustly fired uh, and, you know, someone has repudiated a contract, you're looking for restitution interest, and that would be whatever the cost of the new job that you had to find would be subtracted from the contract agreement that you might have had with an individual. So it's it's nothing like that where it's condition precedent on your ability to find other employment. So the disability payments are purely based on your service, and then it's a review of its impact on future employment for you. So for instance, I dislocated my wrist in my hand and broke my wrist and tore every single ligament across my wrist. Uh, I think like the highest I could get for my wrist is 20 or 30%. I didn't even come close even though I've had two surgeries because at the end of the day, it's not that impactful on my ability for employment. I can still sit there. It's my left wrist. It's not my my predominant wrist. I can't do push-ups off the ground, which sucks but I can do most other exercises and and lead a relatively normal life. And the VA will look at that and say, okay, this person has a clear history of an injury that happened while they're in the military. That doesn't mean that it has to be proved that it is from service within the military. You could have done it while you were on vacation, but the fact that you were in the military and you were serving, uh, that is still uh, an eligibility requirement. So when you go through the process of starting to file, you want to file a form called the 21-526 Easy Form. That's something you can mail in, uh, or fax evidence uh, to intake centers, and and that's located up in Wisconsin. You can also apply online, which is what I recommend and and what I did. So the second step is once you have a fully developed claim, uh, the program goes significantly faster, and decisions are worked a little bit better because everything is done up front. That's gathering gathering all the data and the information, And there's a box up front on that form that you can click. So instead of starting it and then having to go back and forth and upload data, if you do everything at once, it's much easier. And the VA will help you go and get those diagnostic tests. Uh, If you live on post and you're off post, excuse me, and you need to get some work done, so long as you start tracking the information, uh, you will have a much higher chance of potentially getting some recovery for these injuries after you get out of the military. A lot of people will say, oh, I've got ringing in my ears, oh, I've got bad knees, but if you don't have a history of it in your testing and it's not something that you can objectively point to, the likelihood that you list 15 things is just going to annoy the person working at the VA and they're going to be less likely to really give you what you should be awarded and compensated for. So that goes to step three. Uh, Step three, we get our claims adjudicated Uh, at one of those regional offices where a rating veteran service representative generally with about less than five years on the job and sometimes no real experience or ties to the military but just a a standard checklist will review your information and issue a rating decision so if you have an adverse rating decision you don't agree with it you have an appeals improvement and modernization act to fall back on from 2017 where they really changed the way in which you can review and argue your case Um, you can file a veterans notice of disagreement where you have a one year statute of limitations and that is essentially saying within that year of you receiving this disability rating, you have to produce some sort of information. You also have to have you know, a statement of the case. Um, you can file a VA form nine, which is a substantive uh, appeal and you can request a hearing within 60 days of that decision or, or one year um, to really review and, and that would be going to the Uh, Veterans Board decision, uh, which can take significant time as the cases have started to build up. But after one year, claims are closed, uh, and you really have to submit some outlandish, really new, stirring evidence uh, to get anything. But so what this act did from 2017 is it really created a whole bunch of new deadlines. So you can go to this supplemental claim line. Uh, You can add new or relevant evidence the VA can assist the veteran. Uh, I've, I've called the VA to ask what my rights were or what I needed to do in order to process new information if I had any. And then the VA really aims to give you a decision in about 125 days. So if you file that information and you say, listen, I think that I had a lower rating than what was expected given the severity of my injury, and you can get data from a doctor or get a written Note from that doctor proving that yes, this injury was substantive and you should be compensated for it that you know that will generally help you. Um, you can also do the higher level review lane, uh, which is a completely new review, and you cannot add evidence. Uh, you can request you know an informal telephone conference uh, for that. but for the most part, this higher level review lane is going to be a whole new person looking at your file at which point you'll be issued a new rating. And then you can do the appeal direct to the board lane. So this is a direct review. You can't add additional evidence. There's no hearing. Uh, the evidence submission, uh, you know, it, it, you can add some uh, additional ones, and then the hearing, uh, excuse me. So the appeal to the board lane, there's three. There's the direct review, which is no additional evidence, uh, no hearing. There's the evidence submission lane, which adds additional evidence, but there's no hearing. And then the final one is a hearing. Uh, at which point you have evidence and a hearing where you have to represent yourself and and go down to DC. I mean, there's all these regional offices too. I should really note that. Like there's one in Manhattan just down the street from my school. There's a bunch across the country. If you live around a major city, there's a likelihood that there's a veteran's office there. You can probably walk in and get some of the basic information. So the rating decision requires, uh, you know, heightened findings uh, of evidence uh, for consideration. So that's looking at the issues, the evidence, and the laws, and when you get your rating decision back, it's gonna outline for you every single element and point to an existing case or law as to why your number is the way it is. Uh, for me, it referenced a case about someone's hand injury. Which my injury wasn't so much to do with my hand, more with my wrist and mobility and strength, uh, but they'll point to that because the general fact pattern proves that this individual had you know, a very healthy lifestyle after their injury. That's just case in point. So what does all of this mean for you, the listener, as you prepare to potentially transition? Be smart about what you're listening. You're gonna hear a lot of individuals that have gotten out that have very high disability ratings, and individuals that have done considerably less than you, potentially, uh, in their short service or even in their long service, and they're walking out with 70, 80, 100%, from things like irritable bowel syndrome, from uh, some back spasms, from wearing their kit, from ringing in their ears, uh, erectile dysfunction, sleep apnea. There's a lot of tests that go into it. uh, But if you just go in there and you just shotgun blast these VA reps who are reviewing it with 15, 16 items, and there's no documentation of any of this, you're going to piss someone off. That's... That's as simple as it is. You are going to piss someone off to no end because you're wasting their time looking through it. And instead of listing actual things that you potentially should earn some sort of compensation for because it's going to limit your employment, they're going to judge you probably more strictly knowing that you're looking to just take free money uh, from a funded program. And I think it's also important to know that while we all served as veterans and in many different capacities, especially with the varying levels of warfare that units experience now and have experienced in the last 10 to 15 years, it's important to know that while this is a funded program and while someone who might have done less than you is going to get significantly more compensation, that doesn't mean that you should just take advantage of it. Okay? Don't take advantage of a system because it's broken. The same morals that made you pursue service, being above some of the pettiness or being about yourself, being an individualist, you know, to being one that's for the the common good, for the greater good of your unit, for those that you're leading. You should really look at this as an opportunity to say, if I truly have not done something to my body that's going to have a lasting impact and I have the opportunity to be healthily employed afterwards, you should probably not try to stick your hand too far into a cookie jar. And keep in mind that there are guys out there And in the future, if something were to ever happen where the funding for this becomes significantly more difficult, and we've got veterans that are dealing with real lifelong problems, I'm talking amputees, I'm talking significant, severe PTSD, excuse me, then those people could be potentially limited in their recovery because of the availability of funds for people that are taking it for dishonest reasons. And we all know individuals that are getting out. I've talked about it from an individual that I knew in Colorado Springs that is getting a significant rating for doing nothing. And it's infuriating. But I think karma exists and that kind of stuff really does fix itself. So just be real practical when you list exactly what ailments you have. Have documentation to point to that and before you get out while you're still in service even if you're not getting out for 10 or 15 years it's kind of the thing that a lot of individuals in combat arms do where we refuse to go get the treatment that we need i remember having some bad jumps and absolutely crushing my head and my knees and ripping my pants up Uh, having bad pt where you know i split my shin down to the bone uh, where you feel like your groin gets thrown out doing some sort of a ruck or you have any other injuries from constantly wearing kit, uh, throwing your back out you know, during platoon live fire lanes. There's a lot that happens, but you don't want to miss the opportunity of future training because you went to the hospital. I'm going to tell you guys that's really foolish because the older you get, you're going to realize how important your health is, especially when you get out of the military. And because of those short periods that you wanted to look really tough, and you did... You're going to pay for it later when you don't get compensated if you truly had an injury. So with that being said, uh, that's going to wrap it up for the weekly dispatch. This week I'll have a breakdown of Jojo Rabbit. Oh, uh, some final news. The Astros are getting uh, in a lot of trouble for sign stealing. It's not a problem because the Nationals kicked the shit out of them in Game 7, so clearly it didn't pay off at home. But going all the way back to 2017 when they won their first World Series, uh, there's some interesting videos that have come to surface showing whistling, stomping in the stands and in the players' areas uh, when pitchers are getting ready to throw very hard-to-hit hits. And then there's been some data that shows exactly how well the Astros hit at home uh, with maybe some of this technology versus how they hit when they were on the road. I think it's going to be really important to see how the MLB responds to this Uh, I forgot to mention that earlier. But anyway, uh, you guys have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay up to date with all of the pertinent information that's coming out of the House of Representatives. Stay above the noise. Understand how process works. Uh, If you have an opinion on this, make sure you can articulate it and you do some education, talk about it with your soldiers, uh, with your partners. And that way, you can really come to a better understanding of how the function of our democracy works and coming across aisles to help one another. But I'm glad that I was able to come back. It's been a lengthy uh, weekly dispatch. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. I will see you next weekend. Bye bye.